Welcome, uh, everyone. Uh, my name is Nitin Sangal. I'm an associate professor at Boston College and I'm a member of the SDR's executive committee as well. Uh, it's a great pleasure to welcome you to our uh, last uh, Meet the Scholar session of the academic year uh, with Professor Carlos Baldwin. Uh, before uh, we turn to today's uh, conversation, uh, I would like to say a couple of words uh, about Meet the Scholar series, uh, in case some of you are not familiar. Uh, this series started uh, about a year ago uh, during the pandemic um, with the purpose of um, bringing together uh, scholars, strategic scholars who cannot be in the same room at the same time together uh, and to connect, create another uh, way to connect. And also, and importantly, also give us a chance to know about um, the, the stories, scholarship, and the personal stories of some of the most influential scholars in our fields that has a big impact on our lives. Um, this, you can access the previous ones. Uh, there are nearly now few dozen uh, uh, presentations uh, available. You can reach it through the SDR's website. You can see them through the YouTube channel of the SDR. And if I'm not mistaken, also since the beginning of this year, there is also a podcast that you can also reach out to. Uh, these are wonderful series uh, to, to really get a great exposure to some of the most influential scholars. Uh, and today uh, we will have our series continuing with uh, another great scholar, another distinguished scholar, Carlos Baldwin. Uh, before uh, I turn to uh, introduction of uh, Professor Baldwin, a uh, couple of ground rules. Uh, we will start with the Q&A. Uh, uh, I will be asking some uh, questions to Carlos to get you know, some information about her background, uh, her, uh, her ideas, her evolution, her suggestions for us in the field. We aim about 45 minutes for that part. That's the first part of our discussion today. And in the second part, uh, there will be a Q&A. Uh, but please feel free to start asking your questions in the chat and you can also ask later. Uh, as well, uh, please, as you have questions, uh, share them with, uh, with us. Uh, I will kindly ask you to mute your microphones uh, so that you know we don't have this background echo. Uh, and again, please post your questions during chat, both during and after the Q and A. Uh, you will have a chance to ask Carlos questions in the areas uh, in the you know, whatever interests uh, to you, and uh, she will be uh, here to answer those questions. With that, uh, let me introduce Professor Baldwin. It is very hard to uh, make a fair introduction to someone who has accomplished so much uh, over, uh, over the years, uh, but let me make a you know, brief introduction and the rest uh, can correct me and also fill in the gaps as we, are, uh, as we, as we discuss. Uh, she is William L. White, Professor of Business Administration Emerita at Harvard Business School. Uh, she got her DBA from Harvard Business School, uh, and uh, which I was surprised the first time I know, uh, but she has a very strong finance background uh, that uh, we will be also asking and talking about it. And the title of her thesis was Illiquid Assets, Liquidity Preference in, in an Uncertain Environment. And she worked with uh, some of the most influential scholars in the field um, during uh, at the time, including uh, Bob Merton, Modigliani, uh, and John Littner. Uh, her research uh, the, uh, that mainly revolves around, again, Carlos, I'll leave that to correct me, 
in my in the way that I introduce your research is the process of designing setback on uh, architecture and on strategy platform business ecosystems. One definition that I really see recurring in her research when I really like when she talks about systems of distributed innovation and platforms and instances of the systems of distributed innovation in contrast to step-by-step -step, uh, innovation processes. In particular, uh, she looks at the uh, modularity uh, in the technical systems and this is effect on firms and industries. Uh, for any students of organization design, this wonderful book is on our bookshelves and don't be misled by the fact that, you know, it's a clean copy. This is my second copy. The other one at home is completely worn out and earmarked all over. So this has been one of the most influential books. Uh, her ideas and her, uh, her, her, her uh, writing has been very influential for anybody who's working in the field of organization design. She got numerous research awards and recognitions uh, from the team division at AIM to INFORMS uh, and uh, many numerous other uh, associations and organizations. Uh, she got uh, also uh, an honorable doctorate uh, from uh, Germany. And she's a distinguished educator for a long time, developed and introduced several courses. Uh, I was astonished to notice that, uh, I, which I also discovered recently, she wrote over 50 cases and notes, which alone it is a tomb of contribution uh, to the field. And she has worked as various positions, both at the business school, at the university, and also numerous corporate and network organization, uh, including the one on climate change and also the, uh, I keep forgetting the uh, name. It's not the Manor House, uh, but the Franklin Square House. Uh, so I, I found that very interesting. Hopefully we will be able to get back to that. Uh, of course, as I mentioned in the beginning, one of the, uh, advantages or the purposes of Meet the Scholar session also get on the, you know, not only the scholarly side, also to get to know the, uh, the person, the Carlos Baldwin, the person. And from a recent exchange, I learned something. I knew that she was an avid uh, dog lover. She had a dog I had seen in the background in some of the converse in the past. But apparently she also uh, very much into equestrians. She loves horses. Uh, she rides whenever she has a chance. And interestingly, also her dog is trying to pretend as a horse in the meantime. Also, you can see that uh, jumping over the fence. So uh, if I forget to ask about these, please remind me. So I want to know more about uh, what is happening and how, how she's enjoying this, especially during the pandemic. Uh, with that, I will now turn to Carlos. Carlos, uh, welcome to Meet the Scholar. Thanks for agreeing to be with us. It's a great pleasure uh, to welcome you to the premium privilege to welcome you to Meet the Scholar. Hey, thank you, Metten. And um, I'm, I'm so honored to be here and, uh, you know, see many, many familiar faces in the, I, I won't shout you all out because would, it would take a while. Uh, but uh, I'm, I'm so happy and then many people who I know virtually or am meeting for the first time. Uh, so uh, uh, wonderful to put, and, and some people with whom I've corresponded via email. Uh, so uh, Gwen, wonderful to see you. Uh, and uh, so, um, yes, uh, very, very, very happy to be here. And, Thank you. Thank you for this great honor. Thank you again for joining us. We are looking forward to learning more about you and your research uh, in the process. It's uh, very kind of you. 
the first thing that we do in this series, uh, we want to get a little bit of your history. Uh, shall, can you tell us a little bit about your life before academics? What is your background uh, before you turn to academics? How where did you grow up? What were some interesting things and challenges uh, early on for you? Uh, yes. Um, so I grew up overseas in the Philippine Islands. My uh, father's family uh, had gone out as uh, when the American uh, when when America uh, colonized the Philippines um, and. Uh, uh, they had been there since 1898, uh, was, were there through World War II, um, and, uh, and so that was, that was my um, childhood, and my parents very much wanted all of their children to um, uh, learn about America, so they sent me to boarding school uh, for high school. Um, I, an all girls boarding school in Virginia, uh, and I hated it. Uh, so <laughs> wanted nothing more than to, and have, have many friendships from that era. But, uh, uh, so, um, then, uh, I, uh, I wanted to go to Stanford University, uh, but didn't get in and had applied to MIT, uh, on a bet with one of my good friends that she said I wouldn't apply. I said I would uh, if there was no essay in the um, application and MIT in those days didn't have an essay and for God's sakes, they let me in. And uh, to my parents' horror, I went. Uh, and uh, they, they, they were secretly okay with it, but it wasn't what they were expecting. Um, and I was at MIT as an undergraduate, uh, and there met my husband-to-be, uh, my still husband, and uh, and also uh, had the had the good fortune to write my undergraduate thesis for Robert Merton, uh, who be, before any of the big papers on option pricing and the capital asset pricing model were published. So, uh, and then I went um, to Harvard Business School as an MBA. Uh, my husband and I got married. And the problem we had was we were always one, I was one year behind him. So we never had the convenience of graduating at the same time. Uh, and so we were always scrambling to figure out something to do to stay in the same city because people didn't get on airplanes then the way we do now or we did before the pandemic. Um, so when he got a job in Boston to be with me through my senior year, I then um, decided, my, my second year, at, at I, I decided that I would um, uh, to stay in Boston uh, go into the doctoral program. It, it wasn't as easy as that. They, they did not automatically admit me or anything. Uh, I had to I had to scramble uh, quite a bit to convince them I was I was serious. Uh, they thought it was useless to educate um, women as doctoral 
candidates because they would just have children and leave leave the profession. Uh, so, uh, so I got my doctorate at Harvard Business School and then um, MIT. Um, the finance group offered me a, a, a um, an assistant professorship, so I went back to MIT. Uh, and then a few years later, back to Harvard Business School, where I stayed for the rest of my career. Throughout this time, my husband and I lived first in an apartment and uh, then in a house. Uh, essentially, if those of you who know Boston met in, uh, near the BU Bridge, so I could cross the BU Bridge and go left up to Harvard and Harvard Business School or right down to MIT for lots of seminars and other things and to see friends and co-authors. Uh, so uh, I always said it was maximum cultural diversity for minimum geographic dislocation. Anyway, and we've been in that neighborhood now for, uh, um, 40 years, for, for more than 40 years. It's, it's quite scary, actually. Anyway, so that that's uh, that that was my journey, or that's the thumbnail of my journey. I didn't initially intend to be an academic, but I really, really, really wanted to make an, a single original contribution to academic research. And I figured I'd do that and then go and be an investment banker. Well, first, your location is very strategic. It is a wonderful location uh, for, for, for many reasons. Uh, so that which I certainly appreciate, uh, you know, living in Boston now for, for myself over, over a decade. Uh, now, shall we go back a little bit to your, you know, the early academic life? Uh, mm -hmm. Because uh, one of the videos that you kindly uh, sent a few days ago, I was, I was watching them. Uh, and apparently this Bob Merton's undergrad class. And then, you know, uh, well, apparently you were the second one in taking it ever. Um, but that is, and the link between what you got uh, during the undergrad, there's an imprint to your PhD and your later choices as well. Can you tell us a little bit that intellectual journey? Um, ab absolutely. Uh, so I was, you know, as an undergraduate, I was blown away, that's very fair to say, by the theories that Merton was propounding. Uh, you know, I always loved math and science. Well, anyway, uh, science. Math is a struggle, but uh, you, I, I, I'd always been impressed by uh, physics and um, and Bob's theory. I mean, it had it had time, it had space, and it had uncertainty, all wrapped up in one stochastic process. And then he solved it and, 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 and sol solved many, I mean, first the problem of option pricing, which was a beautiful and the most applicable theory in uh, all of economics. And then the intertemporal capital asset pricing model, which took what 
John Lintner and others had created, which was the CAPM, capital asset pricing model, which was a single period model. And again, time, space, uncertainty, and suddenly it was a dynamic process and the whole thing, it, 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 was, it was just beautiful. Um, and that imprinted me. Uh, and then I went to Harvard Business School where <laughs> things were entirely different. Uh, as Venkat knows, I sell a lot and, and others. So, so um, and I was taking, uh, in, in my finance course, they were teaching me about uh, cash flows. Uh, and in my production operations management course, they were teaching me about production operations management, which I found I loved. Uh, and had I not been imprinted by finance already, I probably would have been an operations person. Uh, so, uh, um, and so for my doctoral thesis, first I wanted to do something different. I've always wanted to do something. So, so I, my thesis advisor did not sit me down and give me the lecture of Carlos here's a problem that's solvable and uh, you know, why don't, why don't you do a good job on that problem? So they, I was just out there in the, in the ether. I wanted to do something different uh, and I wanted to marry uh, finance and operations. So I had to find something that Bob hadn't done because you know, even though hundreds of papers have come out since 1972. His, his paper was, his first papers were published in 1974. So I took his course and wrote my thesis in 1972. I was reading his thesis in TypeScript and full of typos. I mean, totally. And, and he, had, he had subscripts. He had, you know, in some cases, you know, time, time, space, uncertainty, you have three or four subscripts and they weren't always right. So you're sitting here, sitting, going through the derivations uh, on, this, on this messy, uncopyedited manuscript in Dewey Library, but still it's stuck. And so I tried to figure out what, uh, what, what was, it struck me that it was very, different investing in a steel mill than investing in financial securities. And what was different was that in the stochastic processes that Bob was modeling in options, those of you who know options theory, it's all about dynamic portfolio adjustment. So in, in literally every nanosecond, if the stock moves relative to, if, if the stock moved, your position moves. Uh, and um, the same is true of the cap international, the intertemporal capital asset pricing model. If the if stock if a stock price moves, the optimal portfolio changes, and you rebalance. So, uh, um, so I said, well, you can't rebalance a steel mill once it's in the ground. Uh, and, uh, you know, and, and, and if, if it goes wrong, you really can't, 
things are very easily reversible in, in this branch of finance theory. So I said, well, let's see what happens if um, we make something irreversible, like a steel mill. So once in, you're in. And then in the, in the more complicated model in thesis, uh, um, you could go in a little bit and either go up. It, it, it was a markup process. You could go up and down by one step at a time. And uh, so, so, and then I said, well, uh, I, I, my, John Lintner was my principal advisor at Harvard Business School, but I met up with one of the, um, one of the professors in the um, decision theory group, uh, uh, Richard Meyer, and he, he understood intertemporal uh, stochastic processes, uh, dynamic continuous time processes. And so he became my principal, my main thesis advisor, John Lintner was on my committee. And uh, he basically showed me how to model irreversibility dynamically. Uh, and so that was my thesis was, uh, and you know, I, I tied it to liquidity because you know, liquidity is a concept in, uh, in, in economics. Um, turned out to be more irreversibility than illiquidity per se, but the two concepts are related, so that was okay. Anyway, uh, and, uh, and so then in the process, uh, I decided my, my focus would be real investments like steel mills, and there was a field called real options, which was just kind of getting off the ground. Uh, some of Bob's uh, PhD students were interested in modeling real options. And I got on, and I said, you know, that's what I'm doing. I'm doing real options too. Uh, and um, so, so that way I became a real options modeler. And that was my specialty. I, you know, if you do real options, then you study firms, uh, capital investment decisions, and so I also and and I did capital budgeting. Uh, one of my, I, I worked for an accounting professor uh, for a couple of years, and so I got very much into capital budgeting systems. Anyway, and that was. So it was an attempt to bring the, in truth, I could say that one of the reasons I got a doctorate instead of finding some other job in Boston was I'd been imprinted at MIT with this gorgeous, gorgeous theory. And then I went to Harvard Business School and I learned a lot about how companies really operated and made decisions. And the two things were so unconnected that I felt I would go crazy if I didn't figure out some, how, how they were related in some way, some, 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 some linkage or some thread between the two extremes. And uh, it's still been one of the themes of my life is trying to connect to things that I can't figure out how they work together. Anyway. 
well, thank, thank you for give a sense of layout uh, because I was looking, uh, you know, your earlier studies, but of course I didn't get this evolutionary picture. Uh, can you tell us, um, you know, the, I wouldn't necessarily call the next phase, but evolution over, over time, uh, capital budgeting, uh, uh, I, I can see that you were, uh, you have been, you keep writing on that topic. Uh, I can't, um, I did, I did, for a uh, while, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and they have been quite influential and for uh, for the, our org design folks, uh, then you have also this side on on, on the modularity uh, and also the, the seeing the organization as a technical system. Uh, basically, you look at the uh, your uh, the, the way you look at this very engineering line. When you were saying that you know if I didn't go to finance, I could have gone to operations. I I can I, I can see that whenever uh, <laughs> I, I look at your book and writings on design rules, uh, you can see this almost an engineering look inside the organization and the parallel that you are uh, you are drawing. How did you evolve into that part of your research from your early work? Um, so. Uh... The whole, so while I was working to get tenure, I had a very scattered sort of approach to research. Uh, much of it was related to cases I wrote. Uh, and, um, and, and then my, come, the, my thread was real options. So I, I got tenure in 1986, something like that. And um, my pipeline was entirely empty <laughs> and because, uh, you know, I, I tried to bring everything in, in for the tenure decision. Uh, and I'd also become quite disenchanted with real options as a field. Now, I'm not sure I knew I was disenchanted but I was, it, it had struck me that when, when you apply real options theory, first of all, you make up, instead of observing a stock price series to get the dynamic process, you make one up. Uh, with, with Bob Merton's blessing, you make one up. Uh, and that was his recommendation. And, um, but the other problem was then you would turn this apparatus of, okay, let's, let's model the options implicit in a capital investment. And we would, you know, we looked at things opening and closing a mine or an oil, oil field. Uh, there, are many, there are many applications. And each time, and then you turn this quite complicated crane to get out a a new number, which is the value of the investment, including the options. And the options can kind of become a combinatorial explosion, uh, but so you have to simplify and kind of beat them into submission. And then you find out that counting the option value uh, maybe gives you another 30 to 50% on top of the base value. So whatever the asset, now that can be the difference of, from between being underwater and being worth doing, but it's, it's not an earth shattering. Uh, and, and so many assumptions go into the option valuation that, you know, if you're close to it, it's, you, 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 you kind of get 
a little bit like, like, oh my God, uh, how, how robust is this model anyway? Uh, at approximately the same time, Kim Clark had a, had a political uh, problem within the school. He was trying to start a science and technology interest group and he had tons of people in his own department who were happy, you know, who were happy to be part of it. But one of the conditions the dean imposed was um, that he had to have mul multiple units involved, at least one other unit. And so I got a call from Kim, uh, whom I didn't know at the time, saying, why don't you come over to why don't you learn more about what we're doing in technology and operations management? And I said, well, if anything has options in it, it's gotta be technology. Uh, and so I started going to their seminars. And of course I had met many of my teachers were in that group. So, you know, it was, it was very cozy and friendly. Uh, and they were all talking about um, the Japanese, uh, the, the Japanese um, challenge in manufacturing and also what various companies were doing um, to what today we, today we would call them to create product platforms, to create internal operation systems that would deliver options. Uh, so, so like Sony had designed the, the, uh, the Walkman as a modular system. So I started hearing about modularity and uh, absorbing it a little. Uh, at the end, at the time, the TOM group felt that finance and especially capital budgeting systems, my specialty, were the bane of operations managers trying to do the right thing for manufacturing systems. So the, the, the narrative was, here we are on the floor of the factory trying to put in the latest systems and these accountants with you know, capital budgeting models are calculating expected cash flows and turning the crank that some finance teacher taught them about discount rates and their discount rates are too high and their cash flows are too low, and the investments are not getting uh, funded. Because of course, this was also the time of rampant uh, activists. Uh, it was the beginning of Mike Jensen's movement to put pressure on big companies to return cash to shareholders and, and start taking shareholder values seriously. So those things all came together uh, and I found myself within the TOM group defending, uh, defending finance uh, and, and saying, you're the, you're the guys who you, you don't count the option values. You're not, you're, not, you're, you're not getting it right. You're misapplying my beautiful, not mine, the beautiful theory of finance to your investments. And if you only did it right, they you would get the right answers. Or if, they're not the right answers, you would know they're not the right answers. And there's, you know, there is such a thing as the CEO's pet project. And uh, we, we used to say a strategic invest. So this is for all you strategy guys. A, 
strategic investment is one that won't clear an NPV hurdle. So, so somebody has to declare it strategic uh, in order to get it done. Uh, so all of those things came together in uh, kind of, so beginning in about 88, I started, I, and I learned about Sun Microsystems and, and what a radical organization they were. Uh, and, uh, and I learned about modularity as being kind of a theme coming up over and over and over and over again. Uh, so I really wanted to model it. And, uh, but it was, it was very, it was hard to model. And I, 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 I went up against that difficulty for a couple of years anyway. And then, and then I, then I found the way out. So, Carlos, uh, can you also explain how do you see a link between your study and your teaching? Um, because you have been teaching uh, courses on finance and other topic for for a long time, and you have been writing cases. Do you see them as uh, how complementary they are for you? Um. So it's been different at different times of my life. When I was a, when I was in my first appointment, so I was an assistant professor at MIT, and I taught standard stuff. But I they I was assigned to teach corporate finance, and I could bring uh, facts and cases from from the real world into the classroom, and that was good. And I went to Harvard, and I wrote cases and, and so for all of those years and even some after, uh, every case I wrote ended up being a, a, an academic article as well. So, so, and I had co-authors, other colleagues at Harvard, Scott Mason and, and um, other people, Don Lassard at MIT and, and some others were, were my co-authors and, and we would, um, you know, uh, I would I would try always to take a, a case or or a paper, and uh, and sometimes an empirical, sometimes a consulting project, and turn it into an academic article. Uh, so in that sense, they were very closely married for that time, uh, and and that was true uh, all the way until, uh, well, modular, the, the, the modularity model that became the core of Design Rules 1 really came out of that effort. There I was going to seminars in, in, um, in TOM, hear, hearing all about you know, this, great, this great design principle, modularity, and how and, and it clearly was great because of the flexibility it provided, which is a form of option. But none of the people in the real options domain had modeled uh, this, this particular set of options. Um, and the reason actually was um, kind of deep in the weeds when you modularize something, the, you create a portfolio and you have to add, add up the modules. So there are not very many probably, I, I, I always like to work with uniform distributions. 
if you divide up a uniform distribution into a bunch of like sub distributions, it's not a very pretty thing. You, you, suddenly you don't have uniform anymore. Uh, and if you add up a bunch of outcomes of a uniform distribution and say, what's the aggregate distribution? It's not a very pretty thing. And so one day, uh, so I'm right now I'm in the Berkshires, I'm in Western Massachusetts, and we, we were going back and forth on weekends. One day I was on in my car and the, on the mass pipe and um, uh, and I said, well, the only distribution that is well-behaved under addition is the normal distribution, not the log-normal distribution, which is what all Bob's stuff was based on, but the normal distribution. And so then I said, okay, um, let's do it that way. And that, that cracked the nut. So, uh, Then I had like, Kim and I wrote a paper in 1993. I, I still have it, for, first draft. Uh, and um, submitted it to management science and got completely run around in, by the reviewing process. Uh, five, I, I think they would have rejected it, but Kim was kind of famous at the time. I mean, I, he was very famous, very eminent. So the five round, we went five rounds. Management science, I guess now doesn't do that number of rounds anymore. We had five rounds, two, three years, and, um, uh, and completely inconsistent referees reports. So, uh, then, then I said to Kim, uh, well, I guess we have to write a book. He, he wasn't thrilled by that. Uh, so we tried and then we tried again and uh, he became Dean and I became a Dean. And, uh, and eventually we finished Design Rules 1. So on the, on the way to getting it done, all of this, you know, let's, let's find an interesting case and model it and publish it and do cases, gone. Uh, so, so all the connection between uh, teaching and research kind of went away at that time. By the way, everyone, I posted on the chat a video that Carlis introduces her work. Uh, I hadn't seen it before today. I was blown away how clear, I mean, how it's just really a great introduction to her work. I certainly encourage you uh, when you My watch it. Uh, um, Carlis, uh, the, 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 you're linked to also strategy and management field. I do not know at one point of your career, you start getting more and more exposed to the field, but uh, I know, in, at least in the part that I'm a part of, of this field, you have been also very much integrated in the discussion uh, in strategy and management and more so in the organization design, uh, broader organization design, uh, scholars, scholarly community. What were the things for you were, uh, were or are missing 
from the management uh, management and strategy perspective, and what are the things that you find that were informing the things that you were not explore you had not explored before? Uh, great, great question. Um, so one of the things um, shows how old I am. Field of strategy didn't exist when I was a junior professor. Uh, you know, my Porter wrote his book, Competitive Strategy. But I, you know, and, and I actually took the course, Industrial Organization, that Dick Caves created and Mike Porter was co-teacher of, on which the, the book is based, because Porter's theory is basically classic I.O. And, 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 and then the game theorists came in and they ran with classic I.O. So I.O came to have a heavy dollop of game theory. Uh, but all of this was going on sort of as I was doing real options. And uh, I didn't see a lot of connection, but corporate finance was almost like corporate strategy then. So, so we were doing things in, with investments and you know, allocations of resources in corporate finance. Now corporate finance, except for M&A, and corporate governance, corporate governance now kind of straddles corporate finance and corporate strategy. Um, uh, so, so, so I wasn't connected to the field of strategy. I, I felt they didn't do enough finance. So that was, that was my issue with strategy, was if they just used a little more finance, they would be better off, uh, like option theory. And they did try. They, a number of fabulous strategy scholars did include uh, real options in their in their thinking, but it's very hard to apply in practice. Uh, and um, so I wrote Kim and I wrote DR one because I I felt. Um, I'd seen Sun Microsystems and this new theory of how to design computer systems was, um, uh, was really, really powerful. Remember I said I was dissatisfied with option theory uh, because it had so little impact and there was so much work in getting it done. Well, when I had this model and I started putting in a few not, not too unrealistic numbers, then I got a, a value hit of like multiples, like 20 modules and 20, you know, so suddenly you have 20 times the value. And at the time I'd written a case on, on Sun Microsystems. So this was a, one of the cases, uh, one of the instances of research and teaching being connected. Uh, we had a case on Sun, and uh, I invited Scott McNeely to come speak to the faculty. He was then the CEO of Sun Microsystems. And um, he said in this small group, the, probably in 1989, uh, that if you priced Sun's, if you, if you repriced IBM's mainframes, to Sun's workstation performance. That is, if you, if you paid the same amount for performance on a mainframe 
as on uh, a workstation that the price of the mainframe would be one third of what IBM was charging. And that, and that was his, that was his estimate, you know, it was pretty standard price performance comparison. And, uh, and I went to Kim and I said, you know, that, that changes industry structure. I didn't think of it as org design. I just said, you know, I, I, I did not sell IBM short because I was timid, but you know, that, that changes everything. Uh, and, and we're, we're, we're looking at, you know, um, a, a major force and, um, so, and, and in fact, IBM and all the, I, I've been writing just day before yesterday, just yesterday about the vertical to horizontal transition in the computer industry. And that did occur in the nineties. Uh, and it was due to modularization among some other things, but it was, it was due to value pursuit in a modular system. Um, so I, uh, I'm not sure how, how we got quite there. I, I keep, uh, uh I, I keep dig digressing, I think. Uh, we were discussing about the, in, you know, what you're seeing missing versus oh, oh, things that you... Yes, yes, yes. So I, I didn't, at that point, I didn't know what I was doing. I, I was writing about, I was trying to explain, remember, five rounds at management science and they didn't get it. So I was trying to explain to people, not finance people, how this thing was going to work. And so Design Rules 1 was written with no particular no particular audience in mind. And in that, that got a little scary. Uh, and uh, but, but the other big influence in my life, although it came slowly and really mostly after he died, but Alfred Chandler was one of my teachers in the doctoral program. I took business history from him and I knew his theory. And it seemed to me right that, uh, you know, these large modern corporations had uh, evolved in response to the need to manage a particular set of new technologies, namely flow production systems. Uh, and so then I started doing modularity and I said, yeah, but that works the other way. Uh, that's not going to reward vertical integration because vertical integration is what loses option. You, you lose a lot of options when you co-specialize different pieces of a modular technical, of a technical system. And so this is going to have the opposite of Chandler's effect. Uh, and I, I didn't think of that as being a, an observation about organizational design, frankly. Uh, I just was trying to work out the implications of what I saw as a, a, a thrust towards value seeking uh, in a particular set of industries. And Kim and I had by that time 
uh, decided to focus on the computer industry as our strategic research site. So I was, I, I was getting deep in the weeds of computers, but I, I didn't think of it as in relation to any other field of anything. It was just, uh, you know, a, uh, I, I, I said to Kim in, uh, after the book was in the hands of the publisher, I said, there's no one, no one waiting. There's no one waiting to read this book, you know? <laughs> so it's just, you know, it's gonna sink like a stone. As you were checking, I was uh, um, trying to find within the pile that I, I, I have on my desk, one of uh, the uh, opinion pieces wrote, Eva, you wrote about it a decade ago, and the, the first section titled Distributed Innovation is the Unintended Consequence of Modularity. What you are, I think, is talking is the you know extended research on platforms and uh, modularity is an un unintended consequence of design rules one. Uh, <laughs> <You know? laughs> oh my gosh, maybe yes, indeed, indeed. Uh, uh, with that, uh, please uh, pose your questions in the chat so we can now start having uh, having questions. Uh, with that, uh, Benkat has a very related question, the things we are discussing uh, in terms of your link to strategy uh, and uh, management, of course, your uh, evolution over time in the production and finance and economics. Uh, Venkat, can you please uh, pose your question to Carlos? Yeah, absolutely. First off, hi, Carlos. Great to see you again. Hi, Venkat. Great um, to see you. Absolutely. Venkat uh, was, a, a, was a, a PhD student. Uh, yeah, PhD, right? Uh, I, I think I got a DBA technically. Okay, okay. Uh, technically I, a DBA. I transferred to work. Uh, so, uh, um, you know, and, and a, a friend. So, so as, as people who ask questions, if, if, um, if, if you would just say a little bit about yourself and your own positioning and the things you're interested in by way of introduction. So Venkat, say, say, a, little, say a little something really quick. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm over at Northeastern University as an assistant professor. I did my thesis under Carlos, um, and I my thesis was basically on firm scope choices and the performance implications. And so my my research identity has evolved a lot since my thesis. And so I think I am unintentionally patterning my uh, <laughs> research trajectory after Carlos, where I am in one spot as kind of a gender, race, bias crowd-based scholar, but I kind of started in something totally different. Um, so I I guess, I mean, I there could be way worse role models than Carlos. So I, I really, I, 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 I see it as a great um, uh, testament to her, her, her mentoring. Uh, so I was just kind of curious how she sees the world of interdisciplinary research today. I mean, I, whether she planned it or not, she's kind of one of the most prominent successful examples of interdisciplinary research across management. And as she knows, it has pitfalls from an audience standpoint, from a publishing standpoint, but there's huge high potentially as well, as you know, she's a great example of, you know, how does she see the landscape uh, kind of going forward? Currently? How do I see the, um, so, so uh, you know, wait till you have tenure uh, before you go really interdisciplinary. Uh, it, it, you know, the, the, 
the field the fields cohere because there is a coherent core there and they have an agenda and you better fit in uh and uh you know but but then life is long and uh staying within you know fields get boring uh yeah uh, I could name some, but I don't want to offend anybody. Uh, so, so you know, you, fields run out of gas. Sub, sub fields, real option theory ran out of gas. No question about it. That was my field. That was my sub-discipline. That was the literature that, um, you know, I related to. And, uh, you know, they have gone off. There is still a field there. But it's it's Stuart Myers was claiming in uh, the mid '80s that real option theory would revolutionize corporate decision making. You know, I don't think so. I, it's great for infrastructure projects. That's its big its big place. So the field ran out of gas. There wasn't, you know, there's not a lot of room uh, to do stuff there. And the models are really excruciatingly complicated. Uh, so, um, so I think as a scholar, if you want to be a scholar for a long career, you have to be prepared to look close by at other things, you know, Figure out what you're interested in. Venkat, Venkat had uh, he 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 was interested in something. He had the data for it, uh, and it was a big idea. And so so you know, be on the alert for something that can take you can take you places, and that you you <laughs> you won't wake up two decades later saying, God, what I'm doing is so boring, I can't stand it. Thank you, Carly. Uh, before we continue with our Q&A, uh, can I ask people uh, to turn on your camera? So we will have now the STR shot. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yes, uh, hi everyone, please turn on your camera. And so that we can take a screenshot. Yeah. Awesome. Great. So one, two, three, hey, cheese. All right. We got it. Thank you. Back to you, Martin. Thank you, Joe. Uh, now, uh, let's continue with our QA. I also, I barely went through the half of my questions. I have so many questions to ask you, Carlos. Uh, Tim. Uh, can you ah. uh, elaborate on your question? Uh, sure. Um, there's there seems to be kind of a trend back towards vertical integration in some sense. I mean, you're seeing you know you're seeing firms like Apple that are getting into yeah. semiconductor chips and yeah, yeah, and yeah. Uh, and you know various firms trying to you know develop a cohesive platform, for example. Uh, and so they're vertically integrating uh, in various ways. So what do you think about that trend, particularly in relation to your theory on modularity? Uh, so Design Rules 2 subtitled How Technology Shapes Organizations. 
And um, if I can give a plug to chapter five called Ecosystems and Complementarities, uh, the theory of complementarities is kind of interesting because there's a big economic tradition about strong, what I call strong complementarities need to be dealt with within the boundaries of a single firm. And strong complementarities include things like protecting your strategic bottleneck. So, 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 uh, and um, whereas weaker complementarities, so, so to have an ecosystem, you still need complementarity. The firms in the ecosystem are autonomous decision makers, but they're doing complementary things. Uh, and, um, and sometimes they're coordinated by a platform. Uh, and, um, but, but it's, it's a sliding scale and, and whether or not the ecosystem is sustainable or collapses, uh, that's a matter of the balance of the centripetal forces rewarding, rewarding integration, technical integration and integration of decision unified governance and the centrifugal forces rewarding separation, uh, essentially uh, rewarding diversity of perspective, rewarding risk-taking, rewarding modularity. So, so you know, I, what I would say today is, is that, um, uh, and, and I, I don't believe it's a, it's a simple back and forth. The, some people have proposed that, uh, Charlie Fine at MIT has for one. Uh, I, don't, I don't think you cycle between the two extremes, but I do think that the forces change. And particularly now the big platform companies, uh, they, have, they have a lot they need to protect. And one of the ways you protect a competitive advantage is you make it hard to imitate. And one of the ways that you make something hard to imitate is you make it complicated by integrating a lot of stuff. Uh, and so a lot of vertical integration, your, your example of Apple is perfect. Uh, you know, they, they, and, and they're not integrating everything by, by any means. That they, they're still running a modular production network as a systems integrator they still utilize the foundries, TSMC mainly, and before that Samsung, to fabricate their chips, even though they design the chips. But chip design is like a really fantastic strategic bottleneck for them. I mean, it, it, it flows, it creates the instructions. The chips instruction set flows through the entire, um, the the entire grand system that we use, that we that we have attached to our iPhone, and uh, so, so I would I would say strategic vertical integration is is predictable, uh, and uh, uh, but but you want to look and see whether um, whether there is a strategic rationale or not, uh, and there. To me, companies like Apple and Amazon and uh, Google are, you know, they're being very clever 
in what they choose to bring in-house. Does that make sense? I think you're muted. Thank, thank you, Carlos. Uh, before, um, you know, I want to turn to horseback riding and how Mike, uh, Mike, by the way, Carlos, is not getting into jumping. Uh, I, I, I want to follow up on chapter five. You were talking about chapter five of design rules too. Can you give us an idea? What are the, some of the managers' uh, messages uh, or the learning points that you are uh, highlighting in, in volume two? Thank you. <laughs> you know, I'll, get on, you know, I'll get on my platform. Uh, so, so this is partly to where the holes are in existing fields. Uh, I, I think that for interesting institutional and uh, intellectual reasons, technology is treated very primitive, is, is given very, very primitive treatment in all the all the management disciplines, strategy, uh, even, even op operations deals with specific technologies, but it doesn't really promulgate a theory of how technologies work. Uh, and that has struck me more and more as, as time goes on, that un until you redo, the foundations of, of management theory uh, to make it friendly or to technology, you're gonna be you, you're gonna be you know flying at 30,000 feet. You're not gonna be able to say much specifically. Uh, and so that's what I set out to do in Design Rules 2 in 2015 when I went on sabbatical. Uh, Venkat knows this. Uh, I, I cut off all other co-authorships and, and projects. And I said, you know, this is my last hurrah. Uh, and, uh, and I didn't think I'd be sitting here six years later saying, and it's not done yet. Uh, but uh, my promise to myself was I'd go from the ground up. And so the first section of the book is building blocks, uh, both the theory of task networks, because uh, that was that's the big missing thing is nobody wants to deal with the tasks underlying the organizations. You know, organizations make money because they perform tasks using technologies. And if you're not willing to admit of that level of analysis, if you're an economist and say, the transaction is the unit of analysis. Well, transaction involves two goods and creating those two goods involves a lot of tasks or some tasks or, and technology. So anyway, that's my, that's my rant on, uh, along the way, so, so there are three chapters before ecosystems uh, and ecosystems kind of grows out of looking at tasks and then transaction free zones, which correspond to corporations, but we have transaction free zones that are not corporations. In fact, 
we're in a transaction-free zone right now because we are conversing back and forth in common, creating hopefully some complementary values. Uh, and there's, you know, Metten doesn't have a little, uh, uh, a little ringer or a little timer next to him charging you guys or all of us by the minute the way they do in law firms. So, so we're not being uh, monitored and there is, you know, and, and we're part of a bigger commons. Uh, so there are transaction free zones that are not contained within corporations, but corporations do are by definition transaction free zones. Uh, and then ecosystems are aggregates of transaction free zones. So, but, but, you know, there has to be some thing that binds the ecosystem together. And Rod Adner says it's the value proposition and I agree with him. And other people, you know, put different constructs on ecosystems. But um, uh, Jacobides, Sinamo and Gaver uh, identified complementarity as being part of the root of the problem, but they didn't, they didn't give complementarity very formal treatment in their paper. And, um, and that's, that's, uh, that, that's the, that's, that's the problem is that, that, you know, you, you, it's easy to create these categories, but the categories aren't very clean and they're, they don't always work the way they're supposed to. So the next thing you know, you have a two by two or a three by three or something, and you haven't, you haven't really addressed the underlying issues. So the first half of ecos the ecosystems chapter is to say, this is what an ecosystem is. Uh, and I draw on, I don't know how many of you know the Herbert Simon reference to what, um, what a Martian would see or what an alien from space would see if they looked at Earth and could see and could see economic structures. Uh, his point is that they would see so green, green, green blobs represent organizations and red lines represent transactions. And, and he says the, 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 the alien, the Martian, would see a lot of green blobs connected by a few red lines, not a jillion red lines connecting a jillion green dots. So um, nowadays there are more red lines than there were when he wrote that piece, but it's still true that there are a lot of, lot of green blobs out there and ecosystems are green blobs, are, are collection, collections of green blobs being held together by something and that something has to be complementarity. So the second half of the chapter is about the formal theory of complementarity derived from Milgram and Roberts and how to apply it to ecosystems and what the specific complementarities are that bring things together or, or, or shoot them apart.
because it's in the balance of those complementarities that you are going to get the structure, the, the, the dynamic equilibrium structure that, that lasts. Um, so then fast forward a little bit, uh, and um, there's a part of the book that has to explain Chandlerian firms. So three chapters on flow production leading to, um, leading to mass production. So because the rewards to integration, as Chandler pointed out, were so high back then that it was the only, that they invent the, the robber barons lobbied the state governments of the Eastern United States, well, the state governments everywhere, but particularly the Eastern United States to design a legal framework that, um, that would allow them to do what they wanted to do, which was integrate all these technical uh, pieces into one big modern corporation. And, and uh, you know, so, so, so the fact that the modern corporation, you know, is very friendly to integration of, of technology is, is, is not an accident. They, they paid lobbyists thousands of dollars to, to get interstate, to get interstate acquisitions, you know, interstate holding companies. And, uh, you know, there, there's a bunch of labor laws and uh, a bunch of, of uh, um, uh, a bunch of chartering laws at the state level, and then everybody decided to go to Delaware. They almost went to New. In, in any event, I'm, I, I digress. But there is a deep connection, I argue, between the requirements and rewards of flow technologies, flow production technologies and the modern corporations that dominated the economy until the 1990s. Uh, so that's three chapters. And then I have three chapters on the semiconductor industry. These just got posted last week. Uh, the semiconductor industry is both the source of Moore's law, which created the centrifugal forces that make open platforms um, uh, so attractive and ecosystems, uh, but itself, it's not, it, it provides platforms, but the organization of, of semiconductor firms would be very familiar to Chandler. They, they are, many of them quite, well, the big ones are quite vertically integrated. The only issue is, uh, do they, are they a fabulous foundry combination like TSMC and Qualcomm or an IDM like Intel? And now even that distinction is becoming blurred because TSMC is, TSMC is doing everything but competing with its customers. Samsung is already vertically integrated. And Intel just announced it's going to build two foundries in Arizona. So sounds a lot like classic corporate strategy of big, for big corporations. Uh, and then the part that I'm just, I've drafted now chapters all the way through 25. 
but the next part is seven chapters on um, open platform systems. Uh, open platforms by definition have ecosystems. So I have an introductory chapter, chapter on IBM PCs, the IBM PC and its influence, um, two chapters on standards-based platforms, two chapters on logistical platforms, uh, and three chapters on exchange platforms. Uh, and then I have three chapters on open source communities, which are another place where technology shapes organizations. And then that, and then there's going to be a concluding chapter, but I haven't, I haven't gotten there other than it's chapter 26. So, so that's the, that's the tour. Thank you for asking though. Uh, we are waiting excitedly. So we know that it has been in the making uh, and Gwen uh, kindly, uh, uh, posted the links to uh, some of the uh, some of these chapters that are posted on SSRN, and also as uh, Gavin mentioned, there's a forthcoming issue of uh, ICC celebrating the 20 years of design rules, which was published uh, in uh, two, year 2000. Um, Gwen, Carlos, I will digress for a second because uh, I this is my only second time I'm moderating. Uh, amid the scholar discussion, the last time I ran off time, they asking some of the questions that people are so interested to know. So I will just digress from the research a little bit. So can you tell us about horse riding? So how did you get into it? You know, how did you convince Mike to start jumping like a horse? You know, what did you start with your animal? How did you survive the pandemic? Oh, oh um, so uh, when I went away I, I, I rode as a kid, both in the Philippines and boarding school. Not, not, I wasn't very advanced. Um, and then I didn't ride from college until, uh, until my second child was born. And, you know, with second children, your, your first child can feel a little neglected. Uh, and so I, I wanted something to do that was special to my daughter, that, that the baby like couldn't do. Uh, and I, I, I wanted to go back to writing. So I went back to writing uh, and after a 20 year hiatus and discovered that I was completely addicted. To, it, it was, I, I never, I, I hate all other sports. I shouldn't say that, but I'm, I'm not a big sports person. And yet I walk into a barn and I take a deep breath of the you know, aromas and see the horses and it's like, wow. Uh, luckily my daughter uh, adopted some of the same passion. So it worked very well as a mother-daughter uh, experience. And my son grew up thinking only women ride. Uh, you know, that, that boys can't ride horses, uh, which most barns are very female. It just is a fact about the sport. Uh, and and um, I can also say that equestrian sports are the, among the only sports in which 
men and women compete on an equal basis all the way up to the highest levels of the sport. So, there, so there's not men's riding and women's riding, there are riders and horses. And the horses are both male and female. Uh, so, uh, um, you know, it, it's, uh, uh, it's in inspiring in that way. <laughs> Uh, and uh, so, so I started writing and I quickly found that if you try to stop writing for any long period of time, your body will be racked with pain. So that you have to be committed to regular writing at least once a week for several hours or forget it. Uh, so, so I've been writing regularly uh, since that time, and have uh, uh, have oh dare I say it three horses, uh, one of whom is retired, uh, and Zoe, whom you showed the beautiful picture of, uh, is my my favorite horse. She's a mare, and then I have a very young horse uh, that I'm I'm trying to. Uh, uh, with the help of trainers, I'm I'm trying to learn to ride, and uh, so so it's 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 my passion. My family's very indulgent about it. So uh, and uh, my daughter my daughter also rides and has a horse in New Jersey, and uh, uh, so so she understands. And we talk horses all the time. <laughs> the dog. Is it, is He's it, asking what type of writing. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, and my, Mike is Mike is uh, Mike is now six years old, and as a puppy, he was the hardest puppy uh, I ever I ever managed. Very difficult and very high energy. Terriers are generally high energy, but Mike was in a class by himself. And I would, I would take it, I take him to the barn. I, would, I took my last dog to the barn every time I, I, I went. And uh, so he, he understands the barn. Um, and uh, one day when I was worried about his, his energy, not his lethargy, but his energy, I, I asked uh, the owner if I could turn him loose in the indoor ring with the jumps, put it pretty low, you know, decent but low levels. And then I pointed him at the jump and uh, he took to it, you know, just flew over it. He loved it. He's a very bouncy dog. And, uh, you know, so, so that's his sport. And uh, it, 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 it works for him. Well, he's, he's been... He goes through phases. Sometimes he gets a little burned out and he doesn't want to jump. But other times if he gets a bit of a rest and he sees the jumps anew, uh, then he's enthusiastic again. And uh, he's, uh, he, he's good. So, so you know, uh, a day when he has, we call it agility. Agility is a dog discipline where they do not horse jumps, but dog jumps, and but that's his agility class for that anyway, he does agility when he gets a chance. 
well, he, is, he still has many years to go. And uh, I hope you have, when you're writing your book, enough chance to go to Western Mass uh, uh, during during the pandemic. I know I don't know it was a uh, it was helpful or hurtful uh, in, in that endeavor. Uh, yeah. By the way, when you were talking about the gender roles, it reminded me one of the things that you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation today. When you're getting to a PhD, you're saying that it was not, you know, women were not expected to PhDs. They were, you know, they had certain you know, childbearing roles and so on. So it was, you know, you didn't fit the stereotype, if you will, at the time, the expectations. Um, hopefully we have evolved over time in the right direction. Um, but what is your take in uh, where are we today and what can, uh, what can be, what can and should be done moving forward? Um, I, uh, things have changed so very much, so very much. Um, I was one of six women in my MBA class. I was one of just a few women in the doctoral program. Uh, I was um, one of six women on the faculty. Well, I was one of three women on the faculty at Sloan when I joined and one of six women on the faculty at Harvard when I went to Harvard. And those numbers thankfully are now very different and we see women at all levels of, um, all levels of society. I mean, number of women prime ministers is, is fantastic. Uh, and, you know, we, we've made great progress. Uh, that, um, you know, the, the, we, we still have a ways to go. Uh, and, and, you know, uh, now, the, now the focus is on other, uh, other sources of disadvantage in our society. So, so, so reft, reft and just split apart in so many ways. Uh, and, uh, you know, that, that, that worries me, not just, and, and, and I can remember being so very angry at the unfairness that I was experiencing. Now I, you know, now I'm retired and, and uh, you know, but un unfairness in the classroom, unfairness in, you know, in, in access to resources, unfairness in salary. And, and so unfairness is, is yeah, it, it, it causes emotions that can, you know, that can't be being said. At the same time, you know, if we fragment into a million different pieces on the basis of unfairness because everybody experiences unfairness sometime in their life through something and if the if the only answer to feeling put upon is well it's a bit like brothers and sisters i think i would get so angry at my siblings or the things they would do and the advantage they would take of you know either something my parents knew or something they didn't know or something uh and you know but at the end of the day you know you, you say well that was that's over and hopefully they are graceful enough to apologize and you're graceful enough to apologize and 
you know, you come together again and have have fun. But you know, I think I think at the political level now we're sort of in the uh, it's t- it's too easy to be angry mode. So frankly, I'm worried. Uh, now I will. Uh, we will co- conclude our uh, conversation today with two questions. Uh, first one from Yining, the second one from Thomas. Uh, Yining, can you please pose your question to Carlos? In, Yining, are you there? <laughs> okay. So. Oh, sorry. I just unmute myself. Yeah. Yeah, thank you, Professor Baldwin. And I have a question about ecosystem. Oh, that's a great. That's a great question. Ask it quickly. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm just wondering on um, the relationship between the two concepts. Yeah. So, 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 uh, there's intellectual history here. Traditionally, in economics, the the analysis of an industry was an analysis of competing firms. And the definition of the industry was the the extent of the you know it was basically on the basis of a product market in which different firms competed, and supply chains and you know you know supply chains and alliances and all of those things were left out. So in um, in Porter's book, the first one, competitive strategy, he you know he he looks at the and in the composition of an industry uh, and, and the five forces are the forces and notice the complementors. He has suppliers because they're there, but he doesn't really look at complementarity and supply reactions. There's, there, there's you know, comp- competition and he doesn't have complementors at all. They're not in his space. So that's one definite, one classic definition of an industry and Relative to that definition, an ecosystem takes into account a larger set of complementors. So that the industry with competitors might be a, a group within the larger system of, so, so that uh, say in, in the computer industry, you would have a b- bunch of PC manufacturers in uh, in a larger ecosystem of chip makers and um, uh, software firms and applications firms and uh, sales and distribution firms back in the day. Uh, But industry has another longstanding meaning, which is the whole collection of ecosystems. So so it's a a bit, so, so, so industries in the small sense, maybe, so I try to say greater computer industry when I mean the totality of all the, all the firms doing anything related to computers whatsoever. And I would say industry might be the, you could say the PC industry, but it's more the PC ecosystem. Uh, but you would have layers at each layer of the, uh, PC ecosystem, each functional layer would be an industry because those are the companies that compete against one another head to head. In the old days, when everybody was vertically integrated, remember the Chandlerian era, uh, industry, the greater industry and the little industry were the same thing because of vertical integration. 
the span of the firms was the entire span of the functioning components. And so your industry defined by uh, GM, Ford, and, and Chrysler was um, the same as uh, the greater automobile industry because they were pretty much it. Uh, anyway, does that help? Yeah, thank you so much. That's very insightful. Uh, with uh, we are we are uh, we are about time. Uh, maybe Thomas, you can uh, ask your question, and maybe Carlos can quickly share her thoughts uh, before we wrap up. Please. Thank you. Sorry for already being over time. Um, my question is related to the notion of bottlenecks and uh, those technical and strategic bottlenecks. And I would be interested in how you decided to integrate these ideas into your work and if you are planning to elaborate further on the concept. Oh, thank you for the question. Um, yes, indeed. It's a building block. Uh, and so, you know, beginning with, um, uh, beginning with the very next chapter, chapter 14, which is sort of laying the, the landscape, uh, I, I start diving into strategy basically in different kinds of platform ecosystems. And uh, say the IBM PC, uh, there were initially a bunch of technical bottlenecks that had to be solved. Uh, and they converted into a, a three-way strategic bottleneck and then IBM messed up its, uh, IBM failed to protect its part of the strategic bottleneck, which was the BIOS, the basic input-output system. Okay, so that's a that is a, a um, that is an application of the concepts of technical and strategic bottlenecks to a specific type of competitive interaction, and that informs all of the subsequent chapters of the book except maybe, maybe not so much the open source community, uh, even open source communities can um, turn out uh, in their relationship to corporations to have a, a connection to strategic bottlenecks. The, the corporations are, are, are kind of preventing something from becoming a strategic bottleneck by open sourcing, by, by giving it to an open source community. And, mm -hmm. and so, so, yeah, pervades the rest of the book. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, that's so interesting, really. Thank you. Uh, with that, uh, I would like to thank everybody for attending uh, and uh, staying with us. Uh, and Carlos, in particular, thank you. Uh, thank you for being with us. Thank you for your sharing your story, your research, uh, and your hobbies uh, in Imperial as well. It's a great pleasure to have you with us. Thank you very much. Okay. Just want to say to Tim, it's uh, English writing in an in, in an indoor and outdoor ring. <laughs> anyway, thank you, everybody. This has been a great joy to see you all, and uh, I, I hope uh, I, I hope to see you all again in virtually or in person. Uh, and if I could ask uh, Zhao to send me a list of participants because I'm not. Uh, I'm not good enough on Zoom to figure out how to do it myself. So thank you. Absolutely. Thank you, thank everyone. You, and please don't hesitate to contact me at any time. Okay? I'll, tr I'll try to respond. Thank you.
Okay, bye-bye, everybody.